Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Last week, we began a series on sin. And, um, and we continue it this week in Mark chapter 7. We'll be in verse 14 through 23 for the next at least uh, three, two, more, or two to three more weeks. We're just going to be looking at these specific sins as Jesus names them, but kind of grouping them in categories of uh, like striking sins and subtle sins and secret sins and kind of going down into the heart because that's the whole point of this section of scripture. So I will read to you from verse 14 to verse 23, and and then we'll we'll get started and I'll pray. Mark chapter 7, verse 14. And they called the people to him again. And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, hear me all of you and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that actually come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and he left the people, the disciples were just tripping out and like, wait, explain to us this parable again. And he said to them, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot really defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach? And is expelled, and thus he declared all food clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. Let's pray. Lord, who is sufficient for these things? To stand up here and um, to actually communicate what your word says. I'm not sufficient, Lord, in and of myself, Lord. Thank you, Christ, that our sufficiency comes from you. And we pray, I pray, God, that you would give people ears to hear, hearts to understand. I ask There might be somebody in here or people in here that just want some other excuse to hate the church or hate Christians. I pray they would see your heart. I pray they see your love and your sacrifice, God. I pray that self-righteousness would be humbled now, that there is no one righteous, no, not one, and that we'd all be thrown under the bus, so to speak, and we all would see that we need Christ, every single one of us, Lord. We love you, God. We thank you that you show your grace without partiality. You show your mercy to all and upon all who believe. So I pray you find hearts filled with faith this morning. I ask God that you would anoint me and use me, Lord, and submit my heart and my mind to you. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, last week, we started a series on sin. And we started it from this passage in Mark's gospel. Now, Mark's gospel has been dealing with the real Jesus. The real and rather, especially in this passage, the rather raw Jesus. Because in chapter 7, we get this fairly large chunk of Jesus' teaching on the source of sin and evil. What is the source of sin and evil? And the question that arises is, 
how does one person become defiled? How do you become defiled? And we're not talking about your hands, but your soul. How does your soul, your heart, your conscience become defiled? How does that become unclean and unrighteous before a holy God? Or to say it totally differently, where does all the moral evil in this world come from? Where does all the moral evil in this world come from? The Pharisees thought it came from out there. That's what the Pharisees thought. And that's what kind of the catalyst for this whole teaching. The Pharisees said, oh, evil and wickedness and uncleanness are out there. And the world is dirty. And the righteous goal was to keep the world out and keep our souls clean. But Jesus turned this whole idea completely on its head when he said, evil is not just out there, evil is in here. So you're like, well, evil is all out there. So what we need to do is we need to move to the suburbs. That's what we do. And we get away from just the filth of cities. And we get away from the filth of people. And we move to where it's nice and there's yards and parking lots and things like that and targets and Walmarts. And when we do that, then we will be clean. And Jesus says, problem, it's in your heart. Or if you're like, I just need to leave churches because my church is so just dirty. And problem, it's you. You're the problem. And so Jesus gets right to the heart of what they were thinking. The Pharisees thought it was out there. Jesus says, no, it's in here. And this was actually quite revolutionary. This is why the disciples pulled him aside later and like, hey, can we get some clarification there? Because we don't really understand what you're saying. Moral evil and sin is within us. The problem is us. And we defile and we destroy things out there. We mess up relationships. We mess up religion and church. And we mess up society. It's us. Jesus says it's us. And therefore, we can't be made clean from the outside in, like the Pharisees practiced. You can't just go, okay, I'm going to clean up my life around me. I'm going to clean up my life, and then I'll, I'll be acceptable to God. Then I'll give it to God, and he'll accept it. He says, that's not how you go about it. We must be made clean from the inside out, because our hearts are the problems. So last week, we said that the source of sin was our hearts. That's what we said last week, that the source of sin was our hearts. We said the essence of sin is that we're anthropocentric, and the offense of sin was that it creates reality. We said the source of sin starts in us. The problem's not out there. The problem's in here. And then we said the offense of sin was that sin creates a reality. Cre sin creates a somethingness that's there. Like you've sinned against a friend, and you walk into a room, and there's something there. You don't know what it is. It wasn't there before. You sinned, but it's there now, and it's just hanging there in the room. Sin creates a reality, and God cannot look upon what sin creates with approval. He must remove it. But the thing that really permeates this whole section is the second point. The essence of sin is that we're anthropocentric. That is, we're centered around ourselves. And there's that textual clue that in this whole section, this word that's used 11 times in this passage, and it's anthropos. That means person or human being. It's no accident that this word is used 11 different times. Jesus is saying that the essence of sin is self-centeredness. The reason why you and I sin is because we're bent inward. You take any sin that you, that you commit, and it's because the problem goes back to your heart. The problem goes back to that you're bent inward. We're anthropocentric and not theocentric. And we defined last week what anthropocentric meant. And regarding humankind, me, I'm the center or most important element of my, of existence. It's me. 
I'm the most important thing in the world. Everything revolves around me and my wants and my needs. And I've been to everything. Every relationship is about me. Every church experience is about me. Everything at work is about me. Everything is about me. We take things, we bend it inward. Instead of being theocentric, bending it Godward. Regarding God and his, as a center and the most important element of existence. Everything is shaped around God. That's how life should be. What God says what God requires, who God is, and how God as creator has made us creation. And this is important because all the sins that Jesus mentions here are actually manifestations of our own self-centeredness. All the sins that he mentions here. And now they get kind of crazy, but all of them that he mentions are all because of our self-centeredness. An evil heart manifested in human conduct. It's our evil heart that's manifested out in the way that we live. We take things like religion and pull them inward and make them about us. And we destroy religion. We destroy faith. And this is the very, this is why some of you guys are down with Jesus, but you're not down with the church. You're like, hey, I like Jesus. I don't like the church at all. I'm not going to be a member at a church. I'm not going to really go. Be, be committed to a church. Churches are filled with just hypocrites. So you're down with Jesus, but not the church. You might have been damaged by someone at church that made church about themselves or the church that made church about themselves or their thing. And this very thing is what Jesus speaks against when the, in the Pharisees. And this is what started this whole dialogue. Look at verse 9. He says to them, You forsake the commandment of God and you hold fast to the tradition of human beings. You've rejected God and you've held fast to yourself. You've been everything into you, and that's where it starts, leaving beside the word of God, the commands of God, and making life about us. Then Jesus goes into a list of sins that begins in the human heart, and look at this list again. Let me read them to you. The sin, this list of sins, it's a, it's a pretty gnarly list. Look at verse 20, and he said, here's what comes out of a man. This is how sinful humanity is. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, and this is like an umbrella thing. Evil thoughts encompasses everything because he wraps it back up with evil inside. So all of this comes from your evil hearts, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. Now some of these sins are striking and obvious. Some, some are subtle and accepted in society. Some other, others are secret and lay hidden behind good deeds and good intentions. Nevertheless, Jesus says they are all sin. What I want to do today is I want to look at the striking ones first. And then what I mean by striking is Jesus lists some of these sins here that seem to be more noticeable, more conspicuous than others. And they are sexual immorality, he says, Theft, murder. And what he says about sexual immorality, he uses three different words. He says there's porneia, that's the word for sexual immorality. You can try, kind of guess where we get, what we do with that word. Adultery and sensuality. Stop for a second here. Now, if you've been here at any length of time, if you've been coming since the beginning or the last several months, and we've been talking about Mark, 
Throughout the book of Mark, Jesus has been hanging out with sinners. Jesus has been spending time with tax collectors and sinners. He's been, and this is why the Pharisees are so mad at Jesus. He's been eating with the marginalized. He's been touching the untouchable. We've said that the Pharisees took this attitude of sin from a preventative side. They wanted to make and enforce rules that would safeguard people from the possibility of becoming impure or immoral. They advocated they advocated just avoiding the, the sick, avoiding uh, the marginal, avoiding the morally loose and the richly impure, the broken. They avoided the sinner. But Jesus, we've been saying, Jesus took this attitude of sin from a creative side. He sought to reclaim the impure and the immoral by eating with tax collectors and sinners. When Jesus ate with the tax collector and sinners, he was showing that sinners do not need to do something first to become worthy recipients of God's love. They don't have to get their life together and then hand it over to God and see if they'll be accepted in. That's, and this is what, why Jesus' ministry was so scandalous. He spent time with sinners. Now, Jesus comes with a story of greater power than the power of sin, death, and decay. And because of this, the Pharisees may have looked down on sinners, but Jesus looked for sinners. Jesus looked for sinners. Jesus came to reclaim and redeem sinners. Now stop again and think. That sounds really good. And that's, that's what we've been talking about for nine months now. Jesus came to redeem and reclaim sinners. And you're like, yes, I love that Jesus. But what our little sinful hearts never really think about is that if Jesus came to reclaim sinners, he must be the judge who says what sin is, what disobedience is, what is right and what is wrong. See, lest you think that Jesus is the my buddy Jesus and he'll have a beer with us and tell us everything's going to be all right, he lists this huge list of vices, of sins, a list from Jesus of moral wrongs. Last week we said sin equals fail, remember? And Jesus is going, I'm gonna spell out for you that there is actually a standard. I am Jesus who forgives sin, but there is a standard. Now, I'm gonna start by stating the obvious. According to God, sexual immorality is wrong. And I will use that old word, sin. Sexual immorality is sin. And Jesus uses three words to describe this sin. He uses the word porneia, which is sexual immorality. This word basically means fornication. It's the F word nobody uses anymore, okay? <laughs> Any and all sexual sin contrary to God's created intent for humanity Anything contrary to biblical principles is fornication. And this is what he uses here. He says fornication. He says porneia is sin, and it starts in your heart. He uses the word adultery. Basically, adultery is a breach of the one flesh relationship of marriage. Having sex with someone other than your spouse, where fornication is having sex with someone who's not your spouse. And then he says sensuality. He says sensuality is also a sin. This word means sexual self-abandonment. 
This is like whatever with whomever, my passions, my lust determine what's right and what's wrong. And it permeates my language, my decisions, way, the way I spend my money. I'm just sexual to the core, and I do whatever I want to please myself, and I let myself do whatever it, it, it feels like doing. And that's what sensuality means. And Jesus calls all of this sin and evil, and it starts in our hearts. See, the Bible teaches that all sexual practices outside of the way God created human sexuality in Genesis 1 and 2 is a sin. And the creation narrative in Genesis is not some periphery issue. It's not like, oh yeah, Genesis, creation, whatever. It's central to the whole Bible's grand narrative. It's the way that we see it start in a garden and end in a city. It's the way that he tells the whole story. It's about the very nature of God himself. It's about the relationship of heaven and earth, male and female, night and day. There is differentiation in creation on purpose. And the narrative of scripture takes us to the end of the Bible. And we see a marriage of heaven and earth. We see a marriage of Christ and his bride, the church. In other words, creation and the creation narrative wasn't necessarily about you. It was about God. And sex and our human sexuality puts God on display. Even our sexual differences between men and women is an aspect of what it means to be created in God's image. And sexual union in covenant, in covenant between men and women and the marriage covenant also mirrors what God has revealed about himself. The first woman was physically crafted by God from flesh of a man. Genesis chapter two. This was not an accident. God did not run out of material. When they united physically, they became one flesh again. Listen to John Stott. Intercourse in marriage is more than a union. It's a kind of reunion. It's not a union of alien persons who not, do, do not belong to one another and cannot appropriately become one flesh. On the contrary, it's the union of two persons who originally were one, that were then separated from each other, and now in the sexual encounter, in, encounter of marriage, come together again. Human sex and sexuality is not an afterthought of God. Sexual immorality is not arbitrary either. God doesn't say all sexual sin outside of the marriage covenant is sin because, you know what, I'm bored and I like messing with people. He's not like, uh, you know what, it's fun to make up rules and have humans obey them, so I do it. It's not arbitrary. It reflects the nature and the character of who God is. This is why sex outside of the marriage covenant is called sin, and it's such an offense to God. One of the reasons this is so offensive to say is because we've made such an idol out of sex and sexuality. It's something that we actually build our lives upon, our identities upon. I mean, how do you, and this is something I wrestled with for a month when I knew that, I was, that we were going to hit this section Actually, I was really tempted just to go, let's just pass it, keep on trucking through Mark. The thing that I wrestled with the most is how do you even begin to say in San Francisco that all sexual practices outside the way God created human sexuality in Genesis 1 and 2 is a sin? I mean, this city, this is a city that from its own Genesis was steeped in sexual immorality, where a lot of other cities might have been birthed for really, really good reasons, 
this city was put on the, when this city was put on the map, sexual immorality was a part of its narrative. In 1848, there were only 1,000 people living in San Francisco. It was barely a town. By the beginning of 1849, 49, 49ers, gold rush, I hope that you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> if not, would you read something? <laughs> in 1849, it doubled to 2,000 people. But by the end of 1849, there were 20,000 people. This city became a city overnight. In the year 1849, according to some estimates, out of those 20,000 residents of San Francisco, only 300 of them were women, and nearly two-thirds of the 300 women were prostitutes. This city, that's kind of where the city started. I have a quote here from 1876 about the Barbary Coast. The Barbary Coast is pretty much where you go shopping for Louis Vuitton um, by Union Square. That's you see those little emblems on the ground that say Barbary Coast? Oh, cute, Barbary Coast. This is what the Barbary Coast was. It was the red light district of San Francisco. And when, after the earthquake, they ironically renamed it Maiden Lane. This is what it says. This is what somebody wrote about San Francisco. The Barbary Coast is the haunt of the low and the vile of every kind. The petty thief, the house burglar, the tramp, the whoremonger, lewd women, cutthroats, murderers are all found here. Dance halls and concert saloons where blurry-eyed men and faded women drink vile liquor and smoke offensive tobacco, engage in vulgar conduct, sing obscene songs, and say and do everything to heap upon themselves more degradation. Low gambling houses throng with riot-loving rowdies, and all stages of intoxication are there. Opium dens where godforsaken men and women are sprawled in miscellaneous confusion. Disgustingly drowsy or completely overcome are there. Licentiousness, debauchery, pollution, loathsome disease, insanity from dissipation, misery, poverty, wealth, profanity, blasphemy, and death are there. And hell, yawning to receive it, the putrid mass is there also. 1876. Since the genesis of San Francisco as a city, sexual immorality, pornea, has been part of the city's DNA. And this city was virtually remade and remade the world and helped shape the world in the 1960s and the 1970s during the sexual revolution. I mean, think about that. A revolution of sexual thoughts and ideas had its epicenter here. See, one of the greatest parts of this city and why I love this city, it's literally a sanctuary city. In San Francisco... It's a sanctuary in the literal sense of the word. Anyone can come to this city who's been oppressed and marginalized in more conservative areas in the U.S. and the world even and find a home here with virtually no judgment where almost anything goes. That is one of the reasons why this city is so great. But then how do you show a city like San Francisco and the people who live here what Jesus and the Bible say about pornea? when pornea has been a part of its baseline narrative since birth and in every stage of its rebirth, where pornea is part of the city's identity, where at just about every festival, from parades to foot races to a celebration of leather-made products, is in some way celebrating pornea. Jesus says here in Mark 7 that the problem then and the problem now the problem then in Scripture and the problem here today is we've taken the beauty of sex and we made it about us. And we all do this. 
Now, it's easy. San Francisco is just an easy target. You could talk about this everywhere. The most conservative places on the planet, pornea is still deep-rooted problem. Jesus said it's because it's in our heart. We take sex that was created by God and for his glory and for our good. The Bible is not prudish about sex. And we pull it all inward and we make it about us and our wants and our likes and our inclinations and our ego and our needs and we destroy the way God has intended sex to be. In the city of Corinth, in the Bible, they had a saying in Corinth. And the ancient culture of Corinth was not that different from the culture here in San Francisco. And the way that we view sex and sexuality is not that different from the way Corinth viewed sex and sexuality. And the Corinthian slogan was this, hey, food for the stomach. That was their, that was their slogan. Hey, food for the stomach. This, they had this idea that the body is permitted to have everything it craves. So, hey, if you're hungry, feed it. Why? That's why food's there. Food is there to serve you. If you're tired, sleep it off. If you're aroused, either go to the temple, grab yourself a prostitute, or the Corinthians were even known to sexually relieve themselves in public. And they would say, well, isn't that why sex and orgasms and love exist to fulfill our wants and our cravings? So Paul writes a letter to this church in Corinth. And he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. You can do whatever, you could do all things. But for me, I will not be enslaved by anything. And here's the saying, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. That was their saying. And Paul says, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God has authority over your body, over sex, over everything your stomach, food. God is the God over everything. The Bible affirms that sex is fun and beautiful and wonderful and fun. Wait, I think I said that already. <laughs> it brings glory to God and it brings some of the highest good in the context of a marital covenant relationship. The Bible does not affirm sex as an appetite. Sex is whatever I want whenever I want it. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, I believe this church has read this book because I've quoted it like every single week, but I will again because I'm on a roll. On how perverted our sexual appetites really are, this is what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis says, chastity, or sexual purity, is the most unpopular of Christian virtues. There is no getting away, getting away from it. The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. Now, this is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual, sexual instinct as it is now has gone wrong. Something has gone wrong. So your instinct's wrong or the Bible's wrong. You choose. And now he argues from a pure apologetical standpoint. The biological purpose of sex is to have children, just as the biological purpose of eating is to repair the body. Now, if we eat... Whenever we feel inclined and just as much as we want, it is quite true that most of us will eat too much, but not terrifically too much. I mean, one man may eat enough for two, but he does not eat enough for 10. The appetite goes a little beyond its biological purpose, but not enormously. But if a healthy young man indulged his sexual appetite whenever he felt inclined, and if each act produced a baby, then in 10 years, he might easily populate a small village. 
I love him so much. <laughs> this appetite is in ludicrous and preposterous excess of its function. C.S. Lewis is saying our sexual appetites are fallen and really messed up. The Bible doesn't teach that sex is simply an appetite to be fed. The Bible's testimony is that sex is wonderfully created by God and yet is terribly perverted by sin. Well, you say, I've never committed sexual immorality. True love waits, pastor. I'm saving myself. <laughs> really? The Christian community has an awful tradition of vilifying certain sexual sins over others. We are horrible at this, and I, will, I, I repent on behalf of the church that the church has done this, saying some sins, sexual sins, are worse than other sexual sins. That's not biblical or wrong. I mean, that is wrong, and it's not biblical. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? We've got this wrong. This is a, we say this is a sexual sin, and this is a sexual sin, but let's just ignore the rest. So when you hear a sermon like this, you're like, okay, I know where you guys stand now. You're, you're preaching moralism. You're telling me to vote a certain way, and that is not my intent at all. I was watching this, this video with um, a, the scholar N.T. Wright speaking about sexual immorality, and he had, the same, he had a similar point, and I loved it, so I'll repeat it. He said, most heterosexual men are by nature polygamists. He's like, but the church doesn't really ever talk about that, do, do they? He says, we're by nature polygamous in the sense that they are quite cheerfully, they quite cheerfully would be with lots of different women given half a chance. And most guys would say, well, that's just who I am. He says, you want more than one woman. You might not ever get more than one woman, but you still want it. He said, well, that's, I'm a man. I lust. And the Bible says, yes, and that's sin. That is sin. And Jesus takes the sin of sexual immorality and he takes it right to your heart. He does this in Mark 7, and he does this in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Now read that, and you guys are like, I've never slept with a married person. I'm clean. I'm good. I've not done that. See, why Jesus was sharing this was that we tend to interpret most of the laws of God in a way which enables us to imagine that we can escape it like, hey, don't commit sexual immorality. I, I, I didn't. Well, then I'm good, right? Jesus is like, no, you're not good. We do this with murder as well. In Matthew 5, 21, you have heard it said of, the, those, of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders is liable to judgment. You're like, I don't murder. I haven't killed anyone. I'm good. I'm clean. And Jesus says, but I say to you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to the, and the implication here is the same judgment. If you're angry, you're a murderer. You have heard it say you should not commit adultery. Well, I don't. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Sexual immorality, adultery begins in the heart. Murder begins in the heart. If you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. It's an offense to God. If you harbored anger in your heart towards someone, it's sin and it's an offense to God. If you hate, feel bitter, have this unpleasant, unkind feeling of resentment towards a person without cause, it's murder. Thou shalt not murder does not only mean destroying life physically. It is that, but it's not all that. 
The sin of murder starts in your heart, so it means that trying to destroy the spirit and the soul of another person through hate and bitterness is sin. You're like, well, I don't steal at least. I'm not a thief at least. I might be a murderer and adulterer, but I'm not a thief. Really? If you've committed sexual immorality, what really is sexual immorality? What really is murder? Sexual immorality is taking someone's body. Murder is taking someone's life. And theft is taking someone's property. If you've been involved in any of those, you're a thief. If you're guilty of one part of the law, the Bible says you're guilty of the whole law. See, somebody's body is not your own to take for your own means. People are not a means to your own end. Well, you'll say, well, what, what if they offer me their body for me to take? Well, God has never offered it to you, has he? This is what it says in 1 Corinthians 6. At the end, this is Paul's plea at the end of that sexual immorality chapter. He says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I mean, and who are you to play God and take someone's life through murder? Well, you're like, I would never do that. I would never murder somebody. We are, by nature, nobody teaches us this, people who hold bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts. We hold grudges by nature. Your mom never taught you when you were four, okay, and this is how you hold a grudge, honey. No one teaches you that. That's who you are. One of my friends, uh, Tim, uh, recently told me this story where uh, it was uh, his day off, and they were taking him and his wife and his kids to the park for the day, and he tries to put his little, he was going to go put his little daughter in the, in the car seat, and his daughter's like, Dad, I want you to put me in the car seat. And then he had to grab something, so Mommy put her in the car seat, and she got really mad. No, I want Daddy to put me in the car seat. I want Daddy. But Mommy had to put her in the car seat, and they go throughout their day. They go to the park. They have a great day. They're going to bed at night, and Tim's talking to his daughter. He's like, hey, give me a kiss. She's like, nope. Well, give me a kiss. Look at me. Give me, give me a kiss. I want to pray for you. Nope. Like, what's wrong? She looks at him. She goes, car seat. And he's like, oh my gosh, my daughter is such a sinner. <laughs> like, how, who taught you how to hold that grudge all day long? Did mom, who taught you that? Nobody teaches us that. We, we are by nature murderers in our heart. We are by nature people that love revenge. If somebody sends us a nasty email, we will, we know how to send one back like that. Like, oh yeah, sin. You're like, take that and then send one back to you. Like, you don't by nature go, oh, I love that person so much. And I see through their predicament, I know that they're really struggling right now and really stressed out and I want to love them. And I send them a proverb. Like, you don't do that. You want to you get right back at them because you are a murderer in your heart. You want to destroy people. And I don't know if you ever have where you've retaliated and it really destroyed somebody and you like want to take it back. Like, oh wait, I didn't, I wanted you to react like that, but now that you have, I just realized I really hurt you. We are by nature, Jesus is saying, sexually immoral, we are by nature murderers, and we are thefts, thieves. We are thieves. It starts in our heart. Jesus' diagnosis of the human, of human evil and sin is that it's universal in its extent. It goes to everybody in this room, every single person. No one is immune to this. Inside the church, outside the church, you come from a good home, you come from a bad home, everybody's like this. Sin in its nature is self-centered. It's all about us. It's inward in its origin. It starts in our hearts, and it's defiling in its result. It defiles, we ruin almost everything. 
So there's really no hope because we can't do anything to clean our insides. We can't clean our heart. Religion can't clean your heart, and irreligion can't clean your heart. See, all these striking sins are about what you deserve. I deserve this relationship. I deserve to hold on to this bitterness. They don't, you don't know what they've done to me. I deserve to take this for myself. I deserve to take this. It's mine. I've, I, I, I deserve this. See, this is why the only hope that we have is Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one who has true claim of justice, of life and death, to give life and to take life as a judge. He's the only one. However, he came to be murdered for you in order to save you. He's the only one, the only true judge that can righteously condemn all of us But John 3.17 says, Jesus did not come into the world to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. Your judgment and my judgment. And Jesus is the only one who has claim on everything. He can take anything as his, anything he wants. But he didn't, and he rightfully, he laid down his rights for you. He came as a poor servant to save you from your sins and to give you a new heart. Jesus abstained from covenant marital relationships. He was single to show that true identity and fulfillment is found in the Father and to show that his real bride is the church that he bought with his blood. See, the only one that truly deserves everything is the one who gave it all up for you to give you what you do not deserve. Forgiveness, restoration, love, his presence. I mean, do you see how exceedingly sinful you are, but how insanely loved you are? So this causes us to repent. If you've been sexually immoral, repent. But I will also say this. If you've been abstaining from sex for the wrong reasons, repent. If you've been abstaining from sex because I'm better than other people that give their bodies away in sexual immorality, I'm better than that. You're doing it for the wrong reason. It's sin. If you're doing it because you're like, if I don't have sex with anybody, God will give me the best life ever. And I will deserve the best bride or the best husband and it'll be awesome and it'll love me and buy me everything I want if I just hold out. That's then a means to an end. You're using God. Repent. See, we don't just have to repent for the times we've messed up. We have to repent for the times that we've done the right thing for the wrong reasons. See, we're all very, very vile. And Jesus came into our world, took on human flesh, died on a cross that we can have a new heart, that we can have a new life that's in relationship with him, that knows him, and that does these things for the right reasons. See, this, this whole thing is like, hey, stop sinning. That it, it, we, I, I do want you to stop sinning. I want us all to stop sinning. But there has to be a, something that changes deep in our hearts going, I'm going to be more like Jesus. I'm stopped sinning because of the power that God, that's available to me because of what Christ has done. So as we close and we worship, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, before we take communion, we need to examine our hearts. Let's do that this morning. If you feel led to take communion this morning, it's up here available. But before you do, would you examine your heart? Like, am I being, am I immoral? And how and why? And God, would you change me? And I repent. If you've never, ever turned to Christ, that you would turn to Christ and live.
that you would repent, the Bible says in Acts, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of God. And if you need prayer for anything, our prayer team is here. We would love to pray for you. But let's spend this time doing this. Let's not be shocked when somebody comes up for communion because we're all, we all need to repent. The further we get into these sins, we're going to like, oh my gosh, even the good things I do are really screwed up. I need Jesus so bad. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we say that there is no one righteous, no, not one. And we say what your, your word says, that, um, that we have no place for self-righteousness. We have no place to say, well, at least I, I don't do this, or at least I'm not this person or that person. Our hearts are so wicked, God. I pray, God, that you would redeem a community to live in this city that uses love and power and sex totally different. That we would be freed in our heart if we're single. We'd be free to love, worship, and serve Jesus. And if we're married, that we would love, serve, and worship Jesus as we serve and love our spouses. Pray for people that have been abused, that are harboring things in their heart. Pray that people would turn to you and know that your yoke is easy and your burden is light, burden is light and you remove the weight of sin and the weight of sin that's been done against us. You can free us, God. We look to you, Jesus. You're the only one that can save. This church can't save anybody. Only Jesus saves. We look to you now in your name.